Now we come to the so-called Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you'll find excerpts of it in the other Gospels. I do not think that our Lord gave it just one time. I think He gave it on many occasions. He repeated, as you know, a great deal of the truths that He gave. He would repeat parables. He would repeat on several occasions great truths. And Dr. Luke speaks of the fact that He gave this down on the plain, and He has only a portion of it. And very frankly, I'm sure Matthew only carries a part of the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that our Lord gave a great deal more than you have here. But this is given for our learning, our understanding today. Now, there are two things I'd like to say. One is that the far right and the far left are not confined to politics. We have in the exposition of Scripture today among theologians, we have the far left and the far right. And it's not revealed in a more vivid manner than in the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the liberal theologian, he's the far left, he treats the Sermon on the Mount as the gospel. And he acts, even if he doesn't say it, as if it were the only important part of Scripture. I played handball quite a few years ago with a very liberal preacher. He became, I think, rather famous after that as a leader of the liberal wing. He told me one day that all he needed in the Bible was the Sermon on the Mount. And he went so far as to say that all he needed was the golden rule over in the twelfth verse of the seventh chapter. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, may I say that sounds very good. It's very pious, and it's pious drivel to talk like that. The question is not whether you feel that the Sermon on the Mount is your religion. The question is, are you living it, brother? That's the important thing. And we'll have something to say about that a little later on. This is an extreme viewpoint, but it actually is representative of a very large segment of liberalism today. And will you listen to me very carefully now? The content of the Christian gospel is not found in the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, there is absolutely no mention of the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, I declare unto you the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Sermon on the Mount? Is that what Paul gave? No, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And friends, that's not here. The gospel is not in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the reason a great many people like to come to this. It sounds very pious. 
It's nothing in the world but a great deal of verbiage for men to get up and say today, I live by the Sermon on the Mount, when they actually don't. I believe that type of preaching has made more hypocrites in the church than anything else. If any man's honest and will read the Sermon on the Mount, he'll know he's not living up to it. And if that's God's standard, and by the way it is, you come short of it, what are you going to do? Do you have a Savior? Do you have one that can extend mercy to you? Do you have one that can reach down in grace and save you by faith? Because apparently you can't measure up to it. No, may I say they just hold this out before them, and it ministers to hypocrisy today. And to reduce the Christian message to the Sermon on the Mount is a simplicity which the Scriptures would not permit under any circumstances whatsoever. Now, this is the extreme left. Now, we have the extreme right. This group, they treat the Sermon on the Mount as if it were the bubonic plague, and they want to have nothing to do with it. You get the impression that there's something ethically wrong with it when you listen to them. And this group are known as hyper dispensationalist. Don't misunderstand. I'm a dispensationalist, but not a hyper-dispensationalist. And they say that you just can't use the Sermon on the Mount at all. I had one man that said that the Lord's Prayer has no meaning for us today. And when I heard that, he was a leading man. I ran a series on the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. And I have a book called Let Us Pray, and it deals with the Lord's Prayer. It has a meaning for us today, but I don't think it's to be quoted at a Sunday morning service, as we shall see when we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, these folk just want to rule it out. They would say to me today, well, let's pass over the Sermon on the Mount. It's not for us. Well, it is for us, not to us. That viewpoint represents the extreme right today. Now, it is true that there's no gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's tragic indeed to give it to unregenerate men as a standard of conduct, and that if they try to measure up to it that they are Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is law lifted to the nth degree. Man could not keep the law in the Old Testament. And how in the world can he keep the Sermon on the Mount, which is even higher, that is in his own strength? It's likewise true that the modus operandi for Christian living is not really found in the Sermon on the Mount. It gives the ethic without supplying the dynamic. Living by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit is just not one of the truths taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You find nothing in here. Paul says, God has sent now the Holy Spirit into the world, and the Spirit of God is able to produce fruit in the life of the believer. You don't find that here. You don't find the ministry of the Holy Spirit at all. Now, the Sermon on the Mount contains high ethical standards and practices which are not contrary to Christian living. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount expresses the mind of Christ, and certainly his mind should be in the Christian. And there are great principles that are set down here 
which are profitable for the Christian to learn and to study today, but you'll never attain them in your own strength, my friend. You'll have to go elsewhere to look for the power. You have a marvelous electric light bulb here, but you do not have the generator here that produces the power that will make the light. And it's the light, not the bulb, that is all important. Now, the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is to set before man the law of the kingdom. What are we talking about in the Gospel of Matthew? The king. The king has come to present himself now. He began by, we saw last time, preaching the gospel of the kingdom as John had, his forerunner. And then he called disciples as the king to follow him. Now, he enunciates the law of the kingdom. This is the manifesto of the king, and it's the platform of the Prince of Peace. And it's law. It'll be the law of this world during the millennium. That's when it's going to find its full fruition. Christ will be here in person to enforce every word of it. The Sermon on the Mount will finally prevail when he whose right it is to rule shall come. Now, it's inconceivable to me that anyone who acknowledges him today as Lord would despise this document or turn from it. The Christian who calls him Lord will seek to do the things he commands. He can obey only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's worse than futile to try and force the Sermon on the Mount on a gainsaying and rebellious world. Only the gospel of the grace of God can make men obedient to Christ. And it was given to bring men to obedience to God. Now, the Sermon on the Mount needs to be preached to bring conviction to the hearts of men and to let them know that they come short of His glory. The Sermon on the Mount lets men know that they've sinned. It reveals that none are righteous and that all have come short of the glory of God. Now, the Christian can take the principles which are set down here and consider them in the light of other Scriptures to get a better understanding, a full orb viewpoint of the mind of Christ. And you can only find Christ's definition of murder and adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. And believe me, you put that down on someone. I think probably I ought to tell this little story. It took place in my first ministry, and I was much more blunt then than, frankly, I am now. And I guess some folk may think I'm very blunt. Well, anyway, I was invited by a very wonderful man who was a vice president of a bank and an elder and one who had actually helped me get through school. I have his picture right here in my study. He's one of the men responsible on the human plane for me being in the ministry. Now, this man invited me to come up to the Chamber of Commerce, where he was a member, at a noon luncheon and bring a very brief message to them. He said, you won't have but a few minutes, but... I want you to give to these businessmen, they were the outstanding businessmen, Nashville, the gospel. Well, I went up, and I got there a little early, and there were several men standing around. I went up near the speaker's table, and there was a man there, and he shook hands with me, and he began to rip out oaths. I've never seen such a 
fine-looking man, so well-dressed, curse as this man did. Well, finally, he said to me, he says, what's your racket? <laughs> I told him I'm a preacher. Well, he began to cover up immediately. He began to apologize for his language, which he didn't need to apologize to me because God heard him all the time. He needed to apologize to God, which I told him. And he went on then to explain to me that he was an officer in a certain liberal church. And believe me, he was covering up fast. He said to me, says, you know, said, the Sermon on the Mount is my religion. I said, it is. I said, let's shake hands. And I shook hands with him. I said, I congratulate you. You've got a wonderful religion. <laughs> I said then to him, how are you doing with it? He said, what do you mean? Well, I said, you said the Sermon on the Mount is your religion. Are you living by it? Well, he said, I try. Well, I said, that's not quite it. And the Lord said, blessed are you if you do these things. Not whether you vote on them, but whether you do them. Well, he said he wasn't too sure about that, but he certainly tried. Well, I said, then, are you keeping it? Well, he said, I think I am. Well, I said, do you mind if we just take a little test? Well, he said, all right. I said, well, the Sermon on the Mount says that if you're angry with your brother, that you're guilty of murder. I said, could you make that? Well, he said, that's pretty strong. But he said, maybe I could do that. I don't think I've been angry enough to kill anyone. Then I gave him the other one the Lord gave on adultery. I said, he said, if you so much as look at a woman to lust after, you're guilty of the act. I said, how about that one? Ooh, he said, I guess that would get me. And I said, I imagine there's several things in the Sermon on the Mount that would get you. I said, apparently you're not living by your religion. Now, I said, if I were you, I'd change my religion and get something that works. How many people they are today like that man very piously say that the Sermon on the Mount is my religion? Now, all he meant was he just thought it was a good document and a very fine expression, but it didn't affect him one whit. He could cuss like a sailor. And I found out later that he had two wives, one he had at home and one was his secretary. May I say to you, friends, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to have it as your religion, you better make sure you're keeping it because, you know, the breaking of the law is what gets you in trouble. And if you're going to be a law-abiding citizen, you're to keep the law. And it's loaded with law. May I say, the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at it and be honest, it'll bring you to a Savior who died for you on the cross. That's very important to see. Now, these great principles here are for us today, and we need to come to them. It reveals how far we come short, but sets before us a high goal. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, we have only an excerpt, I'm sure, here. Now, we have in this Sermon on the Mount, I've divided it like this, the relationships of the subject of the kingdom to self in the first 16 verses of the fifth chapter. The relationships of the subject of the kingdom to law. That's 5, 17 through 48. And the relationship of the subjects of the kingdom to God. That's in chapter 6. And then the relationships of the subject of the kingdom to others that's in chapter 7. And this will prevail when he is ruling over the earth. Now let's come to chapter 5. And here we have the relationship of the subjects of the kingdom to self 
and to law. Now, it opens with the Beatitudes, and I would have you note there are Beatitudes and not do-attitudes. It states that the subjects of the kingdom, what they are, and how they are to become this type of person. For instance, we'll just look at them. Now, will you notice, and I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 5, "...and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying..." Now, you see, he did not actually give the Sermon on the Mount to the multitudes. He gave it to his disciples. And that is so important to see. He gave it to those that were already his. And don't misunderstand, it was because he saw the multitudes and their need, and this is given to them indirectly. And I believe that today that men need first to come to Christ in this day when the kingdom of heaven is actually in abeyance. The present state of it is a place where the seed is being sown, the Word of God. That's what we're doing right now. I think that's my business, is to sow the seed, the Word of God. That's our business in the world. Now, the day's coming when he'll establish his kingdom upon this earth. Now, this has a meaning for us, but notice what it says. It says, "...blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Now, the poor in spirit doesn't tell you how to become the poor in spirit. It just says the poor in spirit. And he here says nine times, blessed. And the Psalms, by the way, open with the same word, blessed is the man. And there's a contrast, I think, to the Mosaic Law. In the Mosaic Law, the curses back in Deuteronomy. And you remember that Joshua was told when they got into the land that they were to stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you come over Jordan. And then the curses on Mount Ebal. Now, the curses are given in Deuteronomy, and the blessings are given in the Sermon on the Mount, for he alone can bring those. Now, only the saved sinner today can know his poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, the Sermon on the Mount makes some of these fellows, as this man I referred to, why, it makes them boast, for he certainly was boasting. This was his religion. He's trying to kid himself, and he tried to kid me that he was keeping it. He wasn't keeping it at all. It just made a hypocrite out of him, and we got a lot of those. I played golf in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a very wealthy man there. He'd been in the oil business. He told me, he said, I forget how many years, he said, I went to church just like the rest of the hypocrites, and I was one of them, talking about keeping the Sermon on the Mount. Then he said, one day I found out I was a lost sinner on the way to hell, and I turned to Jesus Christ, and he saved me. May I say, friends, don't be taken in by this type of thing. Only the Spirit of God can reveal to you your poverty of spirit. These are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't tell you how to become one. These are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And to know your poverty of spirit, Paul says, being poor, we make many rich. (laughs) That's spiritual riches, by the way. And 
He gives us that over in 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. And I'll not take time to turn to that today. He says, "...as poor, yet making many rich." And that's spiritually. And you'll notice here, the next one is, "...blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted." And by the way, you'll find all of these given elsewhere. The poor in spirits given in Zephaniah 3.12. Blessed are they that mourn, they'll be comforted in Micah 7.1. This is a state, you see. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's Psalm 37.11. And friends, the meek are not inheriting the earth today. I'm sure you recognize that. They are the ones that are not inheriting it right now. So apparently the Sermon on the Mount's not in effect today. Now, when he's reigning, the meek will inherit the earth. And by the way, how do you become meek? This man I talked to wasn't meek. How do you become meek? Well, you and I can't do it. Our Lord was meek and lowly. He'll inherit all things. Now, we are the heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. We're told the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and among other things is meekness. Only the Spirit of God can make you meek when you try to do it, and you do accomplish it, even if you did what you don't. But if you did, you'd be proud of yourself, wouldn't you? And out goes your meekness. You just wouldn't have it at all. How wonderful this Sermon on the Mount is, but let's interpret it accurately, friend. Now, this beatitude, blessed are the meek, is one that certainly has been misunderstood. Meekness is something that you and I cannot produce. It's not by self-effort, but by spirit effort. We are told today that only the Holy Spirit can produce in the heart of a yielded Christian meekness, the Christian who's learned the secret of producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, can turn here to the Beatitudes and read, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and see the rewards of meekness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? We are joint heirs with Christ. Now, the Beatitudes present goals that the child of God shall want to realize in his life, but he can't do it on his own probably heard the old cliche today, the man who said, I have a message that I give, the title of it is, Meekness and How I Attained It. And he said, I haven't given the message yet, but he said, just as soon as I get an audience big enough, I'm going to give that message. Well, I have a notion that he's rather lost his meekness, don't you think? Because the very minute that you and I attain to it in our own effort, we're just a little proud. Now it goes meekness. Well, this is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, we're told, verse 6, "...blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled." But what about the natural man? Does he hunger and thirst for righteousness? Not the ones I meet. The natural man, Paul says, "...receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them." for they're spiritually discerned. This is one that has found that Christ is his righteousness, that he's been made unto us righteousness, and that our righteousness is in him. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, this is one that is 
quite interesting and so misunderstood today. This is not the condition on which we obtain mercy. Listen to Paul in Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And we should be merciful because we have obtained mercy. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. By the way, that's First Peter, the second chapter, verses 9 and 10. So that here you have a condition. And notice the next one, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, any honest man knows today his heart is not pure. How can the heart of man, which is desperately wicked, be made clean? Lord Jesus said, you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto. And it's by the washing of regeneration that we are made clean today. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin. Now, you will notice verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Well, would you like to name one peacemaker in the world right now? There's no one today that can make peace. Christ alone is the great peacemaker, and he's made peace by his blood between a righteous God and an unrighteous sinner. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, "...blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake." for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the application of this beatitude today and to the remnant of Israel in the great tribulation is easy to see. But can it apply to the kingdom that's to be established? Will not all evil be removed? I think many scriptures show that in the millennial kingdom there will still be evil in the world because it's a time of testing. And the outbreak of rebellion reveals that evil was prevalent during the millennium. Now, we come here to verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under foot of man. You're the salt of the earth. Now, Paul says that of believers. And the Lord Jesus says that again, that we're salt and also light. But God's people in any age, under any condition, are both salt and light in the world. The interesting thing here is the way the Scots translate this word savor. And I like their word much better. They translate it by the very expressive word tang. If the salt have lost its tang, the problem today is that most church members, they've not only lost their tang as salt, but as pepper, they've lost their pep also. We've got very few salt and pepper Christians today. You're the salt of the earth. Salt doesn't keep fermentation and that type of thing from taking place, but it sure will arrest it. 
And you and I ought to be salt in the earth. We ought to have a good influence in the world today. And then he says, you're the light of the world. And certainly in the kingdom, the believers are going to be the light of the world. And this is a tremendous principle, therefore, for us. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. We need to be today a light in the world, in your neighborhood, or wherever you move. The Word of God is light. We haven't any light within ourselves. It's to give out the Word of God in some way or another. Now, it doesn't mean that all of us are to spout it off all the time. But it's very easy for you to cultivate some person and very quietly or someday hand them a book or say, why don't you hand them a radio card and tell them to go through the Bible with us. There are many ways that you can be light in the world, you see, and we are to give light. Now he says, let your light so shine before man that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There are those of the liberal persuasion that have spoken of the Sermon on the Mount being anthropocentric. That's their term. And that it's not theocentric. Now, very candidly, those two words are very simple in a way. Anthropocentric means it's man-centered. And what they're trying to say is this is for mankind and blah, 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 along that line. But honestly, the Sermon on the Mount is not anthropocentric. It's not man-centered. It is theocentric. Listen to this. Let your light so shine before man that they may see your good works and glorify you and pat you on the back and give you a gold medal and a loving cup. Is that what it says? No. You and I are to let our light so shine in this world that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's God-centered. During the millennium, during the kingdom here on the earth, everything that's done and said is God-centered. And in this lost world today, you and I should have as our motivation that what we do is to bring glory to God. And I think that is something every Christian should consider very seriously. Now he says here, "...think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill." Now remember that part of the law was the ceremonial law, and he was the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he came not to destroy the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill all. Now, how did he fulfill the law? Well, he was the fulfillment of it, and in that he kept it. And that which it set before man, he was able to attain, and he's able to make over to me his righteousness. But now notice, God's standards haven't changed. It just means that today you and I can't attain them in our own strength, and we need help. We need a Savior. We do need mercy. We obtain mercy when we come to Christ. Now, will you notice verse 18? For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now, I hope you don't interpret what I'm saying that I'm saying today that you can break the law. I'm not saying that. The fact of the matter is it's still a standard. And it reveals to me that I don't measure up to God. Therefore, it brings me to the cross of Christ. And in so doing, 
I carry out what our Lord said, that he fulfill the law. That's the only way I can fulfill it. It's my standard, but I can't measure up to it. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You can't break the commandments and get by with it. Of course you can. But let me see you keep it in your own strength, but you can come to him for salvation and for power and strength. Whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, now notice this, this is very important to see right here. The Pharisees had a high degree of righteousness according to the law, but that wasn't acceptable. How are you and I going to surpass it? Listen to him. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to need him. Listen to him. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Now he takes two of the commandments. Here's one of them. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekah, shall be in danger of the counsel. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. That's a tremendous statement. That means that if you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. You want to qualify? You think you keep the law today? My friend, we need a Savior today. You can't break the law and get by with it. You can't say the Sermon on the Mount's my religion and then break every bit of it, friends, and still mouth the fact that you're religion. May I say to you, God has lifted it now, the Lord Jesus, to the very nth degree. And if you can't measure up, you're going to need a Savior, I'll tell you that. Now, if that didn't get you, this one will. He moves on down now, and I'll move down here to it. He says, Verily I say unto thee, verse 26. You see, he's lifting his teaching above Moses. He's lifting himself to the position as the lawgiver now, and the interpreter too, by the way. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the utmost father. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. How about that one? I've had a man that came down to me one time. I've made for years the statement, No one has ever kept the law. And I still make it. I make it right now. There's not a person listening to me right now that has kept the law. A red-faced fellow, a great big burly fellow, came down to me one Sunday morning and says, you always say nobody keeps the law. I want you to know I keep the law. And he belonged, by the way, to a cult, but he tended our services. And I said, you do? He said, I sure do. I want you to know that. I said, all right, let's look at it. And I gave him the one on murder. He said he kept that. I don't believe he did, but he said he did. But I gave him this one. I said, now, it says, if you so much as look upon a woman to lust after, you're guilty of adultery. And I said, look me straight now and tell me that you've never done that. 
He was already red-faced, but you should have seen him. <laughs> he really got red-faced. And he just turned and gave some sort of an epithet like, Oh, Shaw. And he turned and walked out. You bet he walked out. May I say to you, if you're honest, friends, you come to this commandment here, and these are only two. There were ten commandments. I think he lifted all ten of them to the nth degree. And he tells me I need a Savior. He tells me that all have sinned and that I need to come to him for mercy and help. You see, that's what the Sermon on the Mount does for me. It shows me I'm not measuring up. And you don't break it, my friend. The man that says he lives by the Sermon on the Mount is breaking the law, and he says that the law is not important. You say, how's that? Well, because he's breaking it. He says, all you've got to do is just say you live by the Sermon on the Mount and you keep the commandments, and what you really mean, you vote for them. Now, our Lord deals in a tremendous way with the law and man's relationship to it. And these are tremendous statements. Verse 29, If I write, I offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. This is severe. This is very severe. And it reveals, friends, that if you can't meet God's standard, you need a Savior today. Don't kid yourself and fool around with this and act as if you're keeping it. You're doing nothing in the world but being a hypocrite. And I feel that in our Christian circles today, we're so busy patting each other on the back and complimenting one another. And I find out in church work today, you've always got to give everybody credit for what they do. May I say to you, we're all a pack of low-down, dirty, rotten sinners, not even fit for heaven. We need a Savior today. Oh, you need a Savior. This Sermon on the Mount ought to drive you to the cross of Christ and to cry out for mercy. That's when you honor the law, my friend. That's when you keep the law, really, when you say, honestly, I'm not measuring up to it. Don't kid me that you're keeping it. I know you're not, because you're just like I am. Now, let me read on. Verse 32, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication. Now, he gives here one grounds for divorce. Now, I'm not going to go into that today, because when we get to the 19th chapter of Matthew, we'll find out that he puts down again this great principle on which there is divorce today. Now, I don't want to enter into that right now because I'm already in trouble with a lot of folk, but I really will get in hot water when I get on the divorce question, and we will get to it in the 19th chapter, and I won't avoid it then. But he makes it very clear there's only one grounds here for divorce. He causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, that means divorce that's not on scriptural grounds, which is adultery on the part of the other one. That is something that today is entirely ignored in Christian circles. But I say this will be the law of the kingdom, because there are going to be men and women will want to leave their mates during that period. Now he says again, you've heard that it hath been said by them of old time that thou shalt not forswear thyself, 
but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Now, he said to be the kind of a person that you don't have to take an oath. Today, they have people take an oath. I can remember as a boy that my dad could go into the bank and borrow money and maybe come back in two days later to even just sign the note. And that's all he did is just sign the note. He could call, and they'd put so much to his account. I know that the other day when I went to the bank, I had to sign, I think, four different places. Believe me, brother, they have you sign up. Why? Because mankind's not to be trusted. And there were a lot in that day were not to be trusted. But he said, the child of God under all circumstances should be that way. And he says, let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. When a man says to me, I'd swear on a stack of Bibles a mile high. That's a fellow I don't believe because I think the lie he's telling is a mile high. Verse 38, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. Now, he's changed all of that, and that'll be changed when he's reigning in the kingdom. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. How about that, friends? You follow that. Now, there's a principle here, but we're living in a day when he also said, a strong man armed keepeth his house. And I think that's it. And Paul could say, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord rewarded. In the kingdom, you can turn the other cheek. It's like the Irishman. Somebody hit him on one cheek, knocked him down. He got up, turned the other, and the fellow knocked him down again. He got up, and he just beat the stuffing out of that fellow. Someone said, why'd you do that? Well, he said, the Lord says, turn the other cheek. And I did, but he never told me what to do after that. And he knew what he wanted to do after that. Now, verse 40, And if any man will sue thee at the law, take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. Take that down to your bank, where you have a banker that says he lives by the Sermon on the Mount, and see how far you get with it, my friend. Let's quit being hypocrites. Let's be very frank that this is the law of the kingdom. And when my Lord is on the throne down here, you can go by this. But this is a great principle today. We ought to help those. And I'm afraid that we don't do enough of that. Now, he says, "...you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies." Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That, I insist, is for the kingdom. And he continues on in this way, that we are to love those that are not just relatives and friends or our little clique in the church, but that we're trying to get this gospel out to others. And that's the way that you express your love for others today. Get to them a saving message that will bring them to heaven. Now we come in this chapter to see something that's very important, and it's the relationship of the subjects of the kingdom to God and the inner motives which govern external acts of righteousness. And here we'll see the giving of alms, prayer, and fasting, and the getting of riches. All of these are very important, by the way. 
and we see the relationship of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven to God. And you'll notice that when we concluded last time in chapter 5, and I rushed through that last section there rather hurriedly, we made the statement that business could not be conducted today by this law here. Archbishop McGee of Ireland years ago said that it was impossible to conduct the affairs of the British nation on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I do not know whether I'm related to Archbishop McGee or not, but I certainly find that I think, as he did, about the Sermon on the Mount. This can only be enforced when he is on the throne. That, I think, ought to be quite obvious. Give to him that asketh thee, and for him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. And so many of the wealthy churches today, they attempt to follow, they say, the Sermon on the Mount. That's their regular diet. Well, you go out and try to get something from the rich and see how far you get today, my friend. You won't get very far, I can assure you, because they don't really live by it. They say it's a great document. All they do is they just think it's great. That's all they hear about it on Sunday. But Monday morning, it's just cold-blooded business and cash on the barrel head, or you don't get it. And that, of course, is the way the business world is set up today. But there's a great principle here for the child of God, and we shouldn't miss that. We should try to be helpful to those that are in need. And there's so many kind Christian acts that can be performed today by believers. And after all, there were no hospitals or orphans' homes or works of charity. The Bible doesn't call it that. Acts of love that have preceded the preaching of the gospel, always followed it. And the proof, of course, is the fruit is the important thing. And there is a great principle here, and it concluded by saying that we're to be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And how can you be perfect? Accepted in the Beloved, in Christ. Those that are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation to them. God sees us in Christ, and you get there by faith in him. That's the only way that you can become perfect is through faith in Christ today. Then there begins that slow process of sanctification in our lives. And this, of course, should be a goal. But to say that you can automatically in your own strength attain it and then go to God and say, look what I've done. Look how wonderful I am. And you get all the glory. And you force God to save you on that basis. And my friend, you're going to do nothing of the kind, because you and I are not perfect. And it's only in the little nursery rhyme that the little fellow that reached in his thumb, pulled out a plum, and said, what a smart boy am I. We've got a lot of that in religion today. The little folk that sit around and reach in their thumb and pull out a plum, and they say, my, what a smart boy I am. My friend, may I say to you, you and I need a Savior today. Now we're dealing here in chapter 6 with the externalities of religion. That's very important to see. In chapter 5, the king speaks of the righteousness which his subjects must possess. And it must be a righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. 
Now, they had a religious righteousness. And that man, Nicodemus, was an outstanding man, and he was religious. You can't find much to criticize about him, but our Lord said to him, you have to be born again. Now, we have to have a righteousness, a period of that, and that only comes through trusting Christ. Now, in this chapter, he talks about the righteousness that the subjects of the kingdom are to practice. And the motive, of course, is the important thing in doing for God. No third party can enter into this relationship. These things are between the soul and God. And the things that are mentioned here are the giving of alms. The second thing is prayer. The third thing is fasting. The fourth thing is money. And the other thing is taking thought and care for the future. These are very practical considerations. Now, listen to him here. He first talks about alms. And this all has to do with the externality of religion or ostentation in what you do in a religious way. Now, notice this. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now, your giving is between you and God. And you do not give to be seen a man. This is a great principle here. Now, notice what he says, and he uses very strong language. He says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. He said this with biting irony and with a rapier of sarcasm. And our Lord knew how to use that. It was the custom of the Pharisees when they wanted to give to the poor. They'd go down to a corner, a busy corner in Jerusalem, and they'd blow a trumpet. The purpose of it was, of course, was to call the poor and needy together to receive the gift. But it also afforded a very fine opportunity to let others know how generous they were. Aren't they parallels to some Christians today? Listen, he says, when they do it that way, they have their reward. And you ask the question, well, what is their reward? Well, what was it they were after? They did it to be seen of man. They were seen of man. They blew a trumpet and everybody came running out. And that was their reward. It wasn't between them and God. Now, why do you give? I've been told that certain man. I remember several years ago, I was asked to take an offering in a certain organization. And they said, now, the thing that you want to do is to make sure that you give everybody an opportunity to stand up and say how much they'd give. And the way you do it, say, how many give a hundred dollars? And I said, well, why in the world do you do it like that? Well, Mr. So-and-so's here. If you just take an offering, he'll put a dollar in. But if you let them stand up and say, who's going to give a hundred dollars? He'll stand up and give a hundred dollars, and he'll give it too. May I say, he blew a trumpet. <laughs> and I came to know the man. I came to discover that's the way he gave. I've had many folk that when they'd give you a very large check, and they'd give it to you personally. And I had a man that always gave me that check before I went into the pulpit. He was very smart in doing that because he thought it would excite me enough that I'd get up and mention it. And a friend of his came to me one day and he said, so-and-so's disturbed. 
He gave you a check the other day, and you didn't get up and acknowledge it. And may I say to you, I didn't. And I told this man the reason why. I said, now, this man's a man of means. The check he gave in relationship to what he has isn't very much. But I said, there happened to be a mail carrier also that handed me an envelope. And he didn't want me to open it to laugh the service. And he didn't want me to say a word to anybody. And he gave almost twice as much as that man gave. May I say to you, if I'm going to acknowledge anybody, I'm going to have to acknowledge the other man. But he wouldn't want it. May I say to you that giving is between you and God. And the very minute that you get a third party in there, then you don't get any credit for it at all. I think there's a lot of so-called Christian giving today. The college I graduated from, they sure played on human nature. They sent out a beautiful architect's drawing of a tower they were going to put on the old hall that was there when I was in school. And they very, you know, modestly said, and we'll, of course, name it after the donor. And I understand they had a half a dozen that wanted to give because that tower's known. It's called so-and-so tower in honor of that man. Well, that trumpet's been blown all the time. In fact, it's on there in stone, carved in stone. A lot of people give like that. Now, that kind of giving is worth nothing before God. Notice what he says, verse 3 of chapter 6. When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Don't reach in your pocket with one hand and then put the other hand in the air to let people know how much you're giving. When you put that hand in your pocket to give, just don't let the other hand know what you're doing. That's what our Lord is saying. Oh, this is biting sarcasm. Do you really live by the Sermon on the Mount, my liberal friend? I don't think you do. Now, verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. My Lord uses strong language, doesn't he? For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, they pray to be seen of men. You know they have a prayer shawl. Man goes around wearing that prayer shawl. That means he's in prayer. And that's to advertise that he's praying. He says that if they pray like that, they have their reward. What is their reward? Well, their reward is they want to be seen of man. They're seen of man. But their prayer's not answered. It never gets above the rafters of the building. Verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, this is revolutionary, what we're dealing with here in more ways than one. Did you notice that he's using the term Father, your Father? These are citizens of the kingdom. How do you become a child of God today? To as many as received him, to them gave he the right are the authority to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than simply believe on his name. And our Lord even said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't call God Father. And you'll find back in the Old Testament, they never used that term. There was no relationship of a son 
and a father. Now, the nation Israel, the whole nation was called Israel my son, but not the individual. Now, this is a new relationship that he's talking about here. Now, he says, "...when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do." I counted the other day in a prayer, I suppose, a dozen repetitions. The fellow prayed about a certain thing twelve different times. He says, don't do that. If you just ask the Father one time, he hears you. For they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Now, this is the thing that should guide prayer, the marks of genuine prayer, first of all, is sincerity. You go in and close the door, and it's between you and the Lord. Then there's a simplicity. Don't use vain repetition. Just get right down to the nitty-gritty. Tell the Lord what you got on your mind. And then he gives us a sample here, and he says, "...be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him." Even in your petitions, he already knows what you have need of, but we're to go and ask him. We're told here, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. Now, this is the so-called Lord's Prayer, and I don't want to be ugly today, but I do want to say several things about the Lord's Prayer. I have a book, and the title of that book is Let Us Pray, and I deal with the Lord's Prayer. Somebody says you never use it in your public service. No, I don't think that a Sunday morning crowd should get up and pray, give us this day our daily bread, when they left a turkey in the oven that would be done time they got home, and they already have their meal. I think this is going to be a very meaningful prayer for those that are really hungry. And a well-fed Sunday morning congregation ought not to pray this, because it becomes a vain repetition for them. This is a wonderful model prayer, however. And I can't go into detail. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, this can't be the Lord's prayer, because if it were, very frankly, he couldn't pray this prayer. He couldn't join with you and me and say, Our Father. Because the relationship between the Father and the Son is the relationship in deity, not through a begetting, it's a position and not a beginning. I became the Son of God through faith in Christ. Therefore, he wouldn't join with me and say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Now, we're talking about that kingdom. And the prayer is that this kingdom should come. And this is a worthy prayer for anyone to pray this. Of course it is. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or our trespasses. Either one. I think he used both. He couldn't pray this. He had no sins. He couldn't join with us in this. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It was the disciples' prayer. And he says, lead us not into temptation, which means leave us not in testing, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but may I say this. I think this is a marvelous prayer for a new believer to pray privately to learn to pray. Now, my mother was not saved till late in life. 
and she got a book of prayers. She didn't know how to pray, and she began by just repeating the Lord's Prayer. And then she learned to pray on her own. And then finally she graduated from this, and she could pray her own prayer. We start a child off like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And we just think it's wonderful. Then one day little Willie or little Susie says, God bless Mom and God bless Papa. And then we just go into ecstasy because of that, don't we? Because they're now beginning to pray on their own. Now the day comes when little Willie or Susie, they become 21 years old. They don't get out now and say, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. They can pray on their own now. And when I hear a congregation Sunday morning praying this prayer, I think, well, here we go. Now I lay me down to sleep. We ought to be able now to pray on our own and not just have a memorized prayer to begin with. This was just to help them in their prayer life. And this is a glorious, wonderful prayer, of course. And it does have a meaning for a person today. And everyone ought to pray for the coming of the kingdom. There are many things here, but it was just a model. Then he moves on in this, and he talks about fasting, puts it on the same basis. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Now, if you're going to fast, don't tell anybody about it. Do that on your own. And may I say that I think there's a value in fasting, provided you follow it that way. Now, in verse 19, he says, "...lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth." He's talking about money now. And this is something they don't like for the preacher to talk about. But he says, "...now lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, or where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Now, a great many people think that money cannot be used in a spiritual way. When you talk about money, you're talking about something very material. He says you're to gather up treasure in heaven. Well, how can you gather up treasure in heaven? Well, instead of putting it in a bank in Switzerland, why not put it in heaven where you're never going to lose it? And how can you do that? By putting it in the Lord's work. And you make sure you put it in the Lord's work. My friend, you ought to investigate everything you give to. And if you have a good church and a good pastor, you could sit down with him and you could ask him about radio programs. You could ask him about mission boards. Don't just give to anything. Make sure you're giving to something that the treasure is going to be for you over there in heaven. Somebody says, I don't give for that reason. You ought to. He tells us, gather treasure up yonder in heaven. And that is the laudable motive for giving. And why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you get enough treasure up in heaven, friends, you're sure going to think a lot about heaven. But it's if it's in a bank, you're going to really think a lot about the bank also. He says there is this danger of worshiping money or the material, mammon rather than God. That is the thing he says. Now he concludes here by talking about not only money, but everything else that is material. And he says that you and I are not to give too much thought to these things. Now, a great many people think that money is something that ought never to be discussed in the church. We just should talk about spiritual things. Well, the Lord Jesus certainly had a great deal to say about it. 
Now, the Sermon on the Mount has a very definite interpretation as it relates to the coming kingdom. The king is putting down here his manifesto. Well, now, since the king is our Lord, he's our Savior, then what he says, we ought to listen to it. Now, it doesn't mean that you can make this your religion in the sense that you don't need a Savior and you can keep it. You could never measure up to it apart from his strength. Now, I suppose that as he's shown these externalities, that they are important, but that unless they're done in the right way, they become meaningless. And we see the relationships of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven actually to God here. And it's revealed in these external acts of righteousness. We've seen it had to do with alms, giving of alms. Don't do it publicly. Don't do it for display. It's a relationship between you and God and expresses that relationship. And the same is true of prayer. Actually, the most effective prayer is when you enter into your closet. Pray privately. I'm not much for public prayer meetings, by the way, because of the fact that the deadest service in any church today is a prayer meeting. You can't have anything deader than that. I used to try to build them up, and I've soon discovered that if you have 50 dead saints praying, you don't improve it by getting a 100 dead saints. You still have a pretty dead prayer meeting. What we need is a great deal more private prayer of that type of thing, and it should be done between a person and God. Now we have also fasting is put on the same kind of basis. Fasting has a value. I'm convinced of that, but not publicly. It should be a private, personal matter between the soul and God. And then money is a real test of your relationship to God. You see, money can become your God. The almighty dollar is the God of many today. And covetousness is called idolatry, you recall, by Paul. Therefore, we're not to attempt to put treasure on earth, but you actually can put money in the Lord's work, and by doing it, and if it is the Lord's work and is used for the propagation of the gospel to get the Word of God out, then, my friend, it can be translated or transferred to heaven. It becomes legal tender in heaven, and that's where we gather treasures in heaven. And now he mentions this matter of the material things, our relationship to the material things. Listen to him again as I go over this. He says, Behold the fowls of the air, verse 26, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Now, don't misunderstand. A great many people misunderstand. Actually, the birds of the air, they can't sow. They can't reap, and they can't gather into barns, but you and I can. But we are to do that with the same abandon that the little bird has. The little bird's trusting God to take care of him, and we ought to do that. That doesn't mean that we should not exercise judgment, because he's given us that judgment. And a Christian asked me, he said, you think a Christian ought to have insurance? Sure ought to. <laughs> That's one of the means that you have today. And the important thing is that we are not to go through this life with these things becoming a burden to us.
a Christian asked me, he said, you think a Christian ought to have insurance? Sure ought to. <laughs> That's one of the means that you have today. And the important thing is that we are not to go through this life with these things becoming a burden to us. For instance, verse 28, And why take ye thought of raiment? Just think of the style shows. Think of today the dress of both men and women, the time that is consumed. I'm sure that all of you have had the experience of your wife saying, I can't go, I don't have a dress. And maybe you've said, well, I certainly can't go to this affair. I just don't have the right kind of a suit or necktie to wear. Well, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Well, they can't toil or spin, and yet God takes care of them. You toil and you spin, but don't let it become the burden to you. Of course, a Christian ought to dress as stylishly as they possibly can and ought to dress nicely. I think to be sloven in dress and to be sloven in our actions is really not honoring to God. And our Lord said, just look at the flower. Look what God does for it. God, I think, wants us to use color and be beautiful, as pretty as we can. Some of us don't have much to work with to begin with, but we ought to do the best we can with what we've got and look the best. Because he said concerning these, consider the lilies. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now God's able to clothe the grass of the field. Today it is, tomorrow it's gone. He's able to take care of you. So this idea of being overly anxious about the things of the world, may I say this ought not to be our goal in life. We ought to put the, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then as he takes care of the flowers and the birds, he'd take care of you. But the thing to do is put him first. Take therefore no thought, no anxious thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the days the evil thereof. And someone has said that today is the tomorrow that we worried about yesterday. That's it. And how true that is for many of us. Now, chapter 7, we come to the last chapter and you have here the relationship of the child of the king with other children of the king. And it must be maintained by prayer. And then he gives some final warnings here. He says, "...judge not that ye be not judged." And believe me, that's one that has really been misunderstood. It doesn't mean a child of God is forbidden to judge others. But it means this, "...judge not that ye be not judged." It means to decide, to distinguish, but it also means to condemn. It means to avenge, and it actually can mean to damn. It means here that we are not to judge the inward motives in the same sense of condemning, because you do not know why your brother did that. We can't understand it. We can only see the outward acts, and he doesn't forbid us judging wrong actions and evil actions as we're going to see. But the point is, judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Well, it means simply this. If you are harsh in your judgment of others, 
you will be known as that kind of a person who's harsh in his judgment of others. There are certain people. You know them. I know them. Somebody says, don't pay any attention to what he says or she says. They never have a good word. Well, you see, they're being judged by the way they judge. That's what he's saying here. And now he says, Why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that's in thine own eye? And actually, what he's talking about here is a little piece of sawdust, and you judge that piece of sawdust in your brother's eye, and you've got a whole log, a great big redwood log, in your own eye. That is exactly what our Lord is saying here in this connection. Now, he says that you're in no position to do that. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. You're in no position to judge. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And this matter of harsh judgment is certainly something that we need to be very careful of. The Lord, I think, makes it very clear that we are not to sit in harsh judgment. But he also said, "...by their fruits ye shall know them." And sure, we've got to determine what's fruit. And the late Dr. James McGinley put it in his rather unique fashion. He says, "...I'm no judge, but I'm a fruit inspector." And we can really tell whether a Christian's producing fruit or not. Now, he's putting us now on the horns of a dilemma. He says, "...give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and ran you." Now, you've got to determine who the dogs are, haven't you? This is not a four-legged dog he's talking about. And you have to determine who the pigs are the swine, and you're not to cast pearls before swine, or give that which is holy to dogs. Therefore, there is a judgment that you and I need to make. There are certain places that not be worthwhile to say a word. I remember a friend of mine was in the Tennessee legislature. He was a heavy drinker, and he got marvelously, wonderfully converted. And when I go down to Florida, in fact, when I'm in Boca Raton, Florida, I see him down there. He's a really choice servant of God today, and how he's changed. He's a different man than he was when I knew him as a young fellow. And, of course, I was different then also because he and I ran around together. Practically an alcoholic. His wife left him and home broken up, it looked like. And then he had this marvelous conversion. And he was in the legislature. And the fellows knew how he drank, and they heard... He got religion, as they called it. When he came in, one day they all were looking him over. And finally, one got up and addressed the chairman of the meeting and said, I make a motion that we hear a sermon from deacon so-and-so. Everybody laughed. He got up. He was equal to the occasion. He said, I'm sorry I don't have anything to say. He said, my Lord told me not to cast my pearls before swine. And he sat down. They never ask him anymore, and they never ridiculed him anymore. There are certain ones won't do you any good to speak to them. You're wasting your time. Police Inspector Jensen in the city of New York told me about certain apartments filled with nothing in the world but homosexuals. He says, we arrest them and take them down. They know I'm a Christian. He says, they say to me, 
preaches a sermon. He said, I'd never cast my pearls before swine. And he looked at me and he says, I guess you think I'm a little hard ball. But he says, I was a flat foot here 35 years ago. And I know these folk, I've worked with them for years. May I say to you, there are swine and they're dogs today. Now, what are you going to do? One side you're not to judge, on the other side you are to judge. Well, he tells us what we're to do. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Now, very candidly, ask, seek, and knock refers definitely to this. Now, you may be able to use it in other relations, and I'm sure you can, but this is what it has reference to. Now you've met a person, how are you to treat that person? Are you to judge them harshly? Or is this a swine or a dog? Now when I start out from home in the car of a morning, and I always ask the Lord, I tell him I'm going to meet some new people today and I want him to tell me how I'm to act. There are some people that will need my help and I can help them. And I want to be able to put my arm around them and help them. But there's some other people that I meet, I better be careful. They'll put a knife in my back. And I've been taken in. Oh, you'd be surprised how many times I've been taken in by those that I ought not to be taken in by. I could tell you many instances. I don't have time today of how I've been taken in. Isn't it interesting that Peter in the early church, he knew Ananias and Sapphira were lying? I can never tell when a fellow's lying. We don't have that spiritual discernment today that they had in the early church. I think it's a gift today. I think some people have it. To tell the truth, I think my wife has it. I've found out that she's warned me about several individuals. She said, be careful there. And others, she said, I think you ought to help so-and-so. And I found out that her judgment's been good, lots better than mine is. Probably a woman has a little better spiritual discernment in these matters. May I say to you, this is important, you see. And we are to go and make it a matter of prayer. When you meet new friends, do you ever ask God to make it clear to you how you're to treat them? Well, I found out it's a good idea to do that. And then he goes on to say that God wants to help you in these matters. What man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Ask a fish, he give him a servant? And he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Now the golden rule comes in right here. Therefore, and that's the most important word here, therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophet. All right, you meet somebody. How are you going to treat them? You don't know. You're not to judge. But the other time, if it's a dog or a swine, you sure better know, because I tell you, the swine will kill you. I've discovered that. You have to watch a lot of phonies today. Well, what do you do? Make it a matter of prayer. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, this is the principle that you should operate on, therefore. But may I say, all of this comes together in one package. Don't lift the golden rule out and say, I live by it. Let's understand what the Lord's talking about.
Now he says, enter in at the straight gate. Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in there, because straight is the gate. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Few there be that find it. Now the picture he's given you is not the old picture of a big broad way with a lot of fun on it and a very narrow way. What he's given is a picture really of a funnel. You enter the funnel at the broad way, but it keeps narrowing down until you come to death and destruction and hell. The other one, you begin at the narrow part, and that's where Christ is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And you enter there, and he says, I've come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. And the more you walk with him, the wider it gets. Remember in Ezekiel, out from the throne there came a river. It was just a little stream at first. It widened out, and finally it became an ocean. That's what it means to become a child of God. It gets better every day when you're a child of God. That's what he's talking about here. Now he says, beware of false prophets. The church is to beware of false teachers. But they all come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And that's a good way. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? He says you to know them by their fruits. That's the thing we should watch for in the lives of these. And now he says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can run around and mouth about living by the Sermon on the Mount, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How about doing it, my friend? And if you do his will, you'll come to him as Savior and recognize you need a Savior. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful things. Well, you say to me, why, these miracle workers today, you know God's with them. Are you sure of that? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whoso heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. Rain descended, floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house. If you come to him, he's the foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, when you come to him and rest in him, you can build on that foundation. And you can build a life that has fruit in it. Not by your own effort, but that which the Holy Spirit produces, that which is gold and precious stones and silver. And then there is the other house, and that house is built on sand. What is that sand? That's human goodness, human effort, the old weakness of the flesh. My friend, may I say to you, you need something better than you have to offer today. And... He concludes this by saying, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's the kind of a teacher he was. He came teaching with authority. He's not just repeating something. And you and I today need to recognize that we haven't anything to say unless we can say it with authority, unless you believe it. I don't want to hear a man giving me a string of theories that he's never tried them at all. He knows nothing about them. Today, we have a gospel to give, a message to give, a message of salvation. And we know it works because it's worked in our case. And we have 
the witnesses of others. And it's by coming to Christ. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a glorious passage of Scripture. Don't bypass it. Don't say it's not for today. It is. And if you read it aright, it's going to bring you to the person of Jesus Christ. And you're going to come to him and you're going to say, Lord, you've said these things and I don't measure up to them. And I know you want them done. And I can't do them in my own strength. And I'm guilty before you. I've fallen short. And I need your mercy. I need you as a Savior. And you turn to him. Then he gives you the Holy Spirit that he might produce these things in your life. And so today, all of us are building. Where are you building your house? You're building it on the rock foundation, which is Christ. Sure, you've got to have good works, not to be saved, but to demonstrate to others you need that fruit. Are you building on the foundation? Are you just building out there on the sand? That won't stand the white light of his presence. Oh, that you and I might be brought to Christ through the Sermon on the Mount. We have concluded the so-called Sermon on the Mount, and probably we need to back off and get a perspective of it, because we have said many things that have been rather strange and new to a great many folk today. And a great many people feel that the Sermon on the Mount is the way the church is to live today, that it's given to the church. Actually, if we'll get off and look at the Word of God, God has given three great systems by which he is to govern and to rule mankind. The first one is the Mosaic system, the law. For you know that in the very first of Genesis that God had to destroy the entire human race because of their violence and that every thought and imagination of their hearts were evil continually. And because of that condition, a world had departed from God, and he had to judge it. Out of that, he could only get one man in his family. And from that man and his family, God began a movement toward drawing out of the human family a man, and that man would become the father of a people. And God would deal with these people, and they would be a witness to him. Actually, he was going to give them a land, and he was going to make them a great nation, numberless. And then he was to make him a blessing to the world. And God, through that, was to reach the world. Now, he gave them a system through Moses, called the Mosaic System. And that Mosaic System, at the heart of it, was a great sacrificial system that we are going to see when we go back to the Old Testament in our study and study the book of Exodus. The very heart of it was that burnt altar where sacrifices were made. That altar speaks to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God never forgave sin apart from a sacrifice that was made. Because, you see, the law did not save man. It revealed to man that he was a sinner, and it became a system of condemnation and not a system of salvation at all. And therefore, all constantly, all through the Old Testament, 
It's pointing to the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he came and offered himself as a king in order to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, and his nation rejected him. Now, the gospel of Matthew presents him as king. And I personally think that everything in this gospel that we're studying is to be understood in the light of the fact that he is the king. In the gospel of Matthew, as we've indicated, he was born a king, and he lived a king. He died a king. He rose again from the dead as a king. And he's coming again to this earth as a king. Now, one of the things that he did when he was here, he was to enunciate a law that was different from the Mosaic law. It is the so-called Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Excerpts of it are found in the other Gospels. But here it's given in its fullest extent. And I very candidly believe, as you've heard me say, that I think we have the abridged edition, even in Matthew. And I think the evidence of it is this. He took two of the commandments and lifted them to a higher degree than they were ever interpreted in the Old Testament. Now, he said that if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. Now, there's nothing about that in the Old Testament. And then he says, if you so much as look upon a woman to commit adultery, well, you're guilty of it. Well, believe me, friends, that would take care of half the human race today because there'd be very few men that could say they are not guilty of breaking that. That is, by looking. A woman said to me some time ago, she's a very fine-looking woman and a very wonderful Christian and a very excellent Bible teacher. She's telling about meeting a certain man, and he happened to be a preacher. She says, you know, as he looked at me, I could tell what he was doing. He was undressing me. And she said, I think he tried to rape me during that period. May I say to you, the man never moved an eyelash. He just was sitting watching the woman approach him. I think he was guilty, according to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount lifts the law to the nth degree. And somebody says, well, isn't that what we're to live by today? No. This is for the kingdom that's coming on the earth. And I think that at that time, you will have the unabridged edition of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's going to be the law of the kingdom that will be set up in the future. And I believe that there are great principles here. But we have a different system. And you and I today are living in what is called the age of grace. Or actually, it's the age of the Holy Spirit. Because, you see, you and I are living at a time when God saves by grace, not by law, not by keeping a law, not by following a law. We are not saved by anything that we do. Frankly, friends, you are not a Christian until you believe something. And that something is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according.
according to the Scriptures. Now, that's the gospel. That's what's saying. Nothing that you do, you can't lift your little finger for your salvation. Now, after you say it, God has a way for you to live. And that way for you to live is not the law. It's not the Ten Commandments. Oh, I know, all the great denominations, I was brought up in one of them. I was educated in that denomination. I know what it says. My shorter catechism said that when you get to sanctification and to live for God, they drag in the Ten Commandments. Suppose you did keep all the Ten Commandments, which you don't, but if you did, that wouldn't save you. Because that's not what saves you today. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you. And therefore, the law cannot save you at all. And it's not a way of life either. It's not the Christian way of life. But somebody immediately thinks it means you can break it. Of course, it doesn't mean you break it. It doesn't give you freedom to break it. It merely means that we have another way of life that's much higher than that. Well, somebody says, you've just said that the Sermon on the Mount lifts it, the law to the nth degree, so that must be. No, that's not it. Have you ever stopped to think about whether you can keep the Sermon on the Mount? I want to make some very startling statements now. I hope you're ready for them. If you're not, sit down. and I'll make the statements. Number one, may I say to you, that the Sermon on the Mount has made more hypocrites in the church today than anything else. I gave you the story of the man. He's a church member, an officer, but he could cuss like the proverbial sailor. And he thought that he was a Christian. And when I turned the light of the Sermon on the Mount on him, I found out all he did was vote for it. He just approved of it. He thought it was a pretty nice document. He didn't keep it. He broke it. Of course he broke it. And he could not live by it. You can't live by it. And it's done something else. You see, it's a veneer of religion that a great many people assume when their heart is not changed. Because, you see, the heart of man has to be changed. And so, as a result, in our government today, liberalism is not only in politics, but liberalism in theology has played a great part. And we have talked about the brotherhood of man, the universal fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. Well, the Lord Jesus contradicts that right here in Matthew. He said of even the religious rulers in his day, he says, you are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. Evidently, there was somebody in that day that couldn't call God their father. The universal fatherhood of God didn't apply then and doesn't apply today. Now, we've attempted to deal with the world today since World War II in a spirit of brotherly love. We are hated by most of the nations of the world today and envied by the rest of them. We've spent literally millions and billions of dollars to buy peace. And we don't have peace in the world today. Why? Well, because, friends, you can't put in the principles in the Sermon on the Mount. They've tried to do it. We've had politicians that have tried to put in these principles. 
Somebody wants to come back and say, well, aren't they good? Of course they're good. But there's something wrong. What is it that's wrong? It's the heart of man that's wrong today. It's man that is the problem. A listener wrote to me and said to me, says, Dr. McGee, I don't have problems. I am the problem. And that is the difficulty today. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. God gave them. They reveal His mind, His will. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the mind and will of God. Nothing wrong with that. But there's something radically wrong with man. May I say to you, do you want to hear what the Gospel of Matthew says? And actually, it's the words of the Lord Jesus. Listen to him. He'll tell you where the problem is. He says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. That's Matthew 15, verse 18. Now listen to the next verse, verse 19 of chapter 15 of Matthew. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Now, you can have a religion. You wash your hands and your body, and you can do double somersaults. And you can go through any kind of a ritual or a liturgy. But the heart is the problem. Man has an awful case, a desperate case of heart trouble today, and jogging just won't help him. He needs Jesus, not jogging. And he alone can change it. And that's by a miracle known as regeneration. And when God regenerates a man, he even told a very nice, respectable Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, he told him, he said, ye must be born again. And that thing's been worn out today and misused and abused. It's a marvelous, wonderful truth. It's a miraculous truth. And friends, may I say to you that you and I have to be regenerated because we've got this old nature. When he's talking here about what comes out of the heart, he's not talking about, you know, Joe Dokes' heart, although he is talking about his heart too. And he's not talking about my heart, but he is talking about my heart. And he's talking about your heart. Your heart, friends. That's the problem today with man. You see, Paul enlarged on that. He said the works of the flesh, and that's over in Galatians 5. And he talked about what comes out of the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Now, we live in the day of situation ethics. We live in the day of gross immorality. We've thrown overboard the so-called Judeo-Christian ethic, and you do as you please. I heard a college professor, Ph.D. state some time ago on the TV, he says that he was asked, what is right today? He says, anything is right if it makes you feel good. May I say to you, according to that, if it makes you feel good to kill your father and mother, then it's perfectly all right because it makes you feel good. May I say to you, 
that when the man has restrictions taken off, and God gave the Mosaic law to control the old nature, never did do it. That nation departed from God, and they got far from God. But nevertheless, man was not able to measure up to it. And Paul is constantly saying that in his epistles. Now, how is man to live? Man is to live today not by his effort because he can't make it. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, that is, self-control. Against such there is no law. There's no law that can produce these things. It's not in you or me to love naturally. Oh, we, they can talk about sex all they want to, but we're not talking about that. We are talking about a real concern for others and a real love for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. That does not come naturally. There's a song that goes about doing that which comes naturally. Well, when man does that which comes naturally, you have our contemporary civilization right now that's as lawless and as violent as it can be and there is a question in the minds of many serious men in high places today whether we can survive as a nation. And we cannot, friends, apart from restoring a control on the old nature of man. Now, how are you going to produce these other things? Well, you can't produce them by your effort. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How's that working today? It's just not working. The poor in spirit don't seem to be moving in that direction. It says, Blessed are they that mourn, they'll be comforted. And when those people come out of the great tribulation that have mourned, that time of awful trouble, they're going to be comforted. But today, may I say to you, I know many people that are mourning today. They're not being comforted. And it says here, and here is really the one, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Talk to Mr. Breshda about that. Is he inheriting the world by being meek? Ask the people in Afghanistan today if they came in with meekness. And at the time I'm giving this, they haven't moved into Pakistan, but I wonder what those people are thinking about the meek inherit in the earth. And Ethiopia's already gone down the drain. I have a letter from a missionary there that I tell you, friends, reveals that the meek are not inheriting the earth. I don't know where we got the idea today, except through a misinterpretation of the Word of God. The meek are going to inherit the earth. But it'll be when a king comes who was the meekest man that ever walked this earth. But he's going to come with great power and glory. And he's going to put down unrighteousness on this earth and establish his kingdom. And when he does, that's going to be the law of the kingdom. But today, how we live? By the power of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. That's fruit, not works. Can you love today? Peace? How about peace in your own heart? You have peace with God? Only the Spirit of God can give that to you. And joy. 
really today, friend, wherever you are, do you know what it is to have the real joy of the Lord? And then, how about this business of meekness today? Meek going to inherit the earth, you can't be meek. You and I have a proud heart. Every one of us, I've got it. Well, I like the people patting me on the back. And don't you tell me that you don't like it because you like it too. We are proud. That's the old nature. But the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. And my friend, if there's one thing this poor preacher's labor for in his ministry is just simply this. Oh, God, make me a meek man. Give me humility. Help me to be the kind of a Christian that I ought to be. I can't do it. He wants to do it through us by the Holy Spirit. And friends, this is a new way of living. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is not the Ten Commandments. This is not the Mosaic system. This is new. He says he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies today. It's spiritual blessings today that he's given to us. And now we are to walk today in this world in meekness and lowliness of mind and heart by the power of the Spirit of God. And today we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that will enable us to live for God. It will produce fruit in our life. It will enable us to serve God. That's the plane we're called to. I hope that you now see the Sermon on the Mount in its true perspective. Now we are ready to come down from the Mount where he enunciated the epic and he's going to reveal that he also has the dynamics to enforce this law when he comes to rule on this earth.